ask and you shall receive. Well, I asked you for questions, comments, and smart remarks, and you have been letting me have it. I love it. Messages and questions from all over the world. But there's a common theme. Questions asking me about my approach to athlete programming. You asked, you got it. Today, a crush episode of Creating Coachable Players. I'm gonna take you through my process for athlete programming and explain to you why we do it this way. Super fun, I love this stuff. So let's get to it. levels of sport we've got our coaches who teach us the technical and tactical side of the game teaching skills processes and tactics but those coaches can be very very restricted in how much they can help their players develop because those players simply can't do what the coaches need them to do now it might be because of their stages of development at the younger levels or the youth levels of sport or it might be because of improper or lack of preparation for sport and that's where I come in. My job as a performance coach is to create opportunity for each and every one of the athletes I work with, whether it's an organization, whether it's a team, or whether it's an individual athlete. It might be in the area of strength and conditioning, which is a labyrinth of areas. There are a number of things we do as strength coaches to help our athletes develop and perform, depending on where they're at and what their individual needs are. But it's much, much more than that. That is one small piece of the performance pie, so to speak. We have got the technical tactical side of the game. We've got the athletic side of the game. And within that, all the different areas of athlete development, whether it is strength, whether it is cardiovascular conditioning, agility, movement, power, whether it is the brain game that we talk about, all of these areas that have to come together to help our athletes succeed as players inside of sport. It's my humble opinion that the strength coach or performance coach, a good one anyway, is worth their weight in gold. Especially if they're working in unison, hand in hand with the technical and tactical coaches, they're there to support. All too often in sport, we see compartmentalization of athlete and player development. You have the technical or tactical coaches working on an island over there trying to enhance player in-game performance. And then on the other side, you have your performance team, your nutritionists, your mental training coaches, your strength and conditioning people working to help the athlete develop so they can become better players in the game. But all too often, we see a lack of communication or a lack of coordination between those two groups. And at the younger levels, unfortunately, we're missing one of those groups altogether. And that's the preparation side. It is an expense, there's no question about it, but at what expense do we ignore preparing our players? Just in the last decade, we're seeing a massive shift at the higher levels of elite sport, you know, elite high school academies, the colleges, and certainly in professional sports, the expansion of performance teams, the focus on athlete development for player performance. We're seeing teams of performance people coming together to help support on player performance. And that has been a great, great shift. Why then? do we see injuries at the highest level of the sport continue to rise? I think a lot of it has to do with what's going on at the youth levels where there's just not the resources to have that kind of support in our developmental models. We don't have strength and conditioning coaches. We don't have performance teams at what might be the most important time of development. Now, I might argue that we should really focus on the school systems and physical education to get this done. What a massive shift that would be. If physical education was actually geared to teaching physical education. And I'm not talking about the theory or the science. I'm not talking about playing dodgeball or tag or all those fun games that we do need to play. We absolutely do need to play. I'm talking about teaching movement skills, teaching spatial awareness, proprioception, flexibility, range of motion, strength, 
and all of the things that help set our young people up for success, not just in sport, in life in general. Imagine if phys ed classes right from grade school through junior high through high school were based on sort of that long-term athlete development model that we've talked about so much on this show. Imagine that as your young student is passing through certain stages of development, they're actually getting exposed to the critical elements of physical stress that can help them be successful and healthy. Whether they're interested in sport or not, it doesn't matter. So they can go out and have fun playing beach volleyball or going out and playing a game of golf or whatever sport they're interested in just for fun and pleasure out with their friends horsing around or if they do have the drive and the passion to get into a high performance pathway. Think how far ahead those athletes would be. In my campaign for king of sport, if there was such a position, I joke around when I present that I would love to run for uh, the king of sport position. Not sure I would be good as a king of sport, but I think I do have some ideas that make sense. Let me know if you agree. I think that if we spent more time at the younger levels actually teaching athletic abilities that support sport performance, we would be not only further along in terms of skill and talent development, we'd also see fewer injuries for the lifespan of those athletes. And speaking of lifespan, doing things properly, preparing our athletes properly at the younger ages raises their ceiling of potential as they get into their late teens and early 20s, as they start working through their sporting careers, if they pursue a high performance pathway, whether that's elite high school, whether that's going on to play college sport, or whether it's getting into the national Olympic streams or even professional sport. What we do at those younger ages influences the performance of that athlete way down the road. That's why we always say on the show to you when we talk to you, it's a long game, a really, really long game. We continually work for small victories in the area of athlete development so we can see continued progress on the player and sport performance side. One of the big problems in sport today at every level is that we overcompete. We simply compete way too much. If you disagree with me, let me know. If your organization is doing it right, please let me know because as I travel the world, I just see this everywhere I go. Such an emphasis on playing the game. And I get it. Don't get me wrong. Listen, it's all about playing the game, but not at the of development and player health and wellness. It just can't be. It's not a fair trade-off. We need to rethink this idea of compete, compete, compete. And we need to start thinking about creating coachable players, preparing our athletes for the demands of the game. If you look at the Canadian Long-Term Athlete Development Program, which I talk about so much on this show because frankly, it's just brilliant and it's influenced virtually every single sporting system in the world at this point. In the early 1990s, a conglomerate of sports officials in Canada set about identifying the stages of development that an athlete goes through inside of sport or in general. And they broke it down originally, as we've mentioned on the show before, into seven um, initial stages. And you can go online, you can Google this and search it. And if you're a parent, if you're a coach or if you're an athlete and you haven't seen this before, I suggest you go online and just Google and have a look. And you can see how your career is developed and if it's in parallel with what's happening or what they're suggesting in the LTAD or if there's some adjustments you can make. But one of the things that I really appreciate about that model is the identification of those stages. And what they've done at each stage is they sort of uh, narrow down the priorities for development. So like, for example, you have active start, zero to six, fundamentals, six to nine for males, six to eight for females. Then you have learn to train, nine to 12, train to train, can train to compete, train to win, and then active for life, depending on whether you go into the high performance pathway or if you just love sport and you go play with your friends as a weekend warrior, or as a regular recreational athlete. It's so, so smart. But one of the things that they did inside of that model uh, was really, really smart that I appreciate is they looked at the training versus competition ratios. 
and they broke it down in general. Now, what I would ask you to do is as we talk about this, think about your sporting experience. Think about your, um, your athletes. If you're a coach, if you're a parent, think about your athlete and, um, see if these ratios work with where you're at. What they suggested was from zero to six, there's no ratios. The idea at that age is just you learn to move. I mean, we're not planning out competitive seasons when you're six years old, though we're seeing that now. Not only that, we're seeing six-year-olds, you know, get into tournament play and year-round training, which is a very, very dangerous game to play. Then the next stage, six to nine years, which is a very, very important period because it sort of sets the tone. This is just fun-based activity general. You want a huge mix, a huge sampling of all different kinds of movements. I love the idea of just fun track and field and tumbling type exercises, not structured gymnastics necessarily, but just a fun sort of, you know, tumble gymnastics, funnastics type of an environment. So, so great for kids. Then when you get to that very important nine to 12 year age group, this is where that skill acquisition happens. They actually start recommending ratios of training preparation to competition and getting into scheduled competitive play. And at nine to 12 years old, the model suggests that 70% of the time spent working on your sport should be based on training general training and probably for that age, you know, skill acquisition, learn to throw, learn to kick, maybe advancing to some team play, but just getting the fundamentals down. 70% of the time should be dedicated to training, only 30% competition. Now, if you remember when you were nine and 12 years old, think back to how much time you spent practicing and how much time you spent playing. Or if you're coaching kids at that age right now, or if you're a parent of kids at that age right now, 70% training and practicing, 30% competition. You tell me if your team is even close or if your athlete's even close to that. From my experiences and my observations, it is skewed the opposite way. We are competing way too soon and way too much. And honestly, this is where we're seeing the injury rates or why we're seeing the injury rates, I believe, at such high levels as we get into competitive high school, college, and professional sports. This is where the damage is being done. And this simple ratio might be part of the answer. At 12 to 16 years of age, it starts to shift a little bit, a little less training. We go from 70% training to 60% training to 40% competition. And then 16 to 23 years of age, where you're probably, you know, in that high performance pathway if you're pursuing sport or you're shifting into the more recreational side, 40% training to 60% competition and specific training. And that specific training might be extra training or an extra focus on skill development. It might be a skills coach or extra time with those coaches outside of competition, maybe even working on team tactics and the technical side of the game, but really, really hyper-focused on sport specificity and sport performance. So 40% training to 60% competition and specific training. And then 19 years plus, this is where you're probably dedicated to either a high performance pathway or you're shifting over to a more recreational, fun approach to sport. But if you're in the pathway, if you're really focusing on sport performance, whether you're at a college level um, or whether you're getting into national team or a professional angle to your sporting career, 25% training now to 75% competition and specific training. So there's a massive shift here. At nine to 12 years of age, we're recommending 70% training and development to 30% competition. At 19 years plus, 25% training to 75% competition. I wonder where you sit. What was it like when you were an athlete coming through or if you are an athlete at one of those ages, are you even close to that? Again, in my experiences, traveling the world and, and working with organizations everywhere, I see this ratio terribly, terribly skewed towards competition. And not only that, the timing of this competition sometimes is absolutely insane and flat out wrong. I have seen community programs where uh, sports starts and a week later, they're playing games already. They're not prepared for those games. And even if they're coming from other sports, each sport has its unique demands we have to prepare our athletes for. 
And then also we have the crux of year-round training and early specialization where our athletes are now focused in on one particular sport at an early age. And if it is at an early age, 9 to 12 years of age or 12 to 16 years of age, that training side becomes even more important because a lot of sports, actually most sports, they take away more than they give back in terms of long-term development. And if they're a one-sided sport like tennis, golf, or baseball, um, you will see massive asymmetries develop in the body that can not only lead to injuries, they also lower that ceiling of performance. And you have to offset that where, when, in the training period. So, our push here at Crush Performance is to help athletes, coaches, teams, and organizations understand that ratio. Even at the elite levels, when they draft and sign a player coming into an organization, where has that player come from? What has he done? What has he experienced through his development? And what can we do to not only offset the risk of injury, but also impact performance right now, while at the same time, pushing the future ceiling of performance upwards, Instead of dragging it down too many times, I see athletes, teams, and organizations sacrificing future development, bringing that ceiling of potential down for performance right now. It is a death trap in sport. I'm telling you, I promise you, please listen to me. You can improve the performance of your players right now. I promise you, but you cannot do it at the expense or the cost of lowering future performance. You just can't do it. A great example of this would be doing heavy strength training too early. Strength training literally changes the structure of the body. And a lot of that is irreversible. And if it's done wrong at the wrong time of development in the wrong way, it can totally destroy top end future performance. Another thing that we see is overcompeting, competing too much right now with the idea that that helps our athletes master their skills. Well, they're not going to master their skills till later in development anyway. So I would rather spend more time building athleticism, building athletes who can then be coachable as they work their way through the sporting system. Not only will we see a higher level of skill and performance, i do believe we'll see a massive, massive decrease in injuries. So when we take in an athlete, we might not be able to control the competitive environment they're in, but we certainly do everything in our power to offset the dangers of that environment in order to impact their current performance, while at the same time we push their future potential to new heights. When I get an athlete who's 16, 17, I'm already thinking about what's the potential when they're 20, 22, 23. When we get an athlete coming in who's nine or 10, we start thinking, okay, what does a nine or 10 year old need to do right now so they can love and participate and contribute and maybe chase down a dream when they're 16 or 17? Or we get a seven year veteran of a professional sport. How do we take them to their first all-star game? Or how do we increase their value as a player so they can sign a huge contract the next time they sign? Or maybe most importantly, how do we go about keeping them healthy so they can play longer? These are the ideologies and philosophies that drive our programs, but there's much, much more to it. So how about this? Let's take a look at the areas we feel are very, very important in athlete development to support player performance, the foundations of development. And let's also review our top priorities for development, because if these aren't taken care of, nothing else matters. Let's have a look. So as we all know, COVID was an unprecedented time in the world of sport. Global sport literally shut down at all levels. And we were incredibly worried about the impact that would have on our athletes. So we set out very, very quickly to kind of offset the lack of competition and look for ways to push development during this crazy, unpredictable time. And one of the things that helped all of us get through it, coaches and athletes alike, was the connection through the virtual world, the webinars we were able to host, the sharing of information over the internet that really wasn't part of our regular communications. It became incredibly important. 
And over that period, I did about 75 online webinar presentations to athletes, groups of athletes, coaches, and coaches and parents. And after each presentation, without fail, there would be emails asking for more information. People asking, hey, Jeff, where can I get this? Where can I see more of this? How do I get more information for that? And unfortunately, a lot of the things we talk about here on this show aren't readily available anywhere online, especially in the context in which we're talking about them. And that to me was a major problem. I'm still getting emails to this very day from people who attended one of those webinars asking for more information or direction to resources. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of great information that's available out there. So I took it upon myself through that downtime. I wasn't traveling for Major League Baseball anymore. I wasn't doing a lot of local work because we were shut down. So I started developing an online resource. It's a course that I'm calling Creating Coachable Players. The first rendition is just about to be released. This first one is geared for baseball and it's for coaches. It's to help coaches understand the whole premise of athlete development for sport. Because while they're great at teaching skills and drills and the technical tactical side of the game, most coaches don't know a lot about developing athleticism for sport performance. And that is where the huge gap in the sporting system is right now, especially at the levels where they don't have the resources for sport scientists or sport experts like myself to get involved. So what do we do? Well, let's teach the coaches. Now, keep in mind, the course isn't about teaching skill development or the technical tactical side of the game. We'll leave that for the coaches. This is about creating coachable players, the things you need to do before you even think about sport performance. This is what's missing in the sporting landscape. And it's kind of funny because when I first started thinking about putting together a resource, because we got so many questions, you don't understand the emails that were coming in and I had nowhere to send these people. So I said, okay, I'm going to record a couple little videos just explaining some of this stuff. And I thought it might be four or five videos talking about our top priorities, which we'll get into today for sure. But it turned into this monster, man. I couldn't stop. I was like hooked, man. I'm hooked on this stuff. So now there's like 35 lessons and seminars. There's 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 PDFs, there's links, there's podcasts. It's this awesome, awesome thing. I'm actually quite, quite proud of it. Um, again, it's not high definition, you know, Hollywood recording, but the information is real and usable. And uh, because it got so big, uh, we thought it would be too much for introductory coaches. Yeah, so there's three levels now. There's a level for introductory coaches, a level for, you know, committed coaches. If you're coaching your, your, your kids, if you're committed to coaching in the community, and then there is a masterclass sort of level that's everything uh, if you're a coach that's serious about sport performance and and man, it has been fun putting it together and we're just about to release the baseball version and it's called Creating Coachable Players. You can actually go on our website and see it. But it turned into this thing because of our interactions with you guys, the parents, the athletes and the coaches out there who are really trying to do it right. There is a gap in the sporting landscape and it revolves around preparing athletes for sport. So. What do we do when we take on an athlete? Let me tell you, we focus on where that athlete is at. We talk about, you know, this idea of sport performance and athlete and player development being very similar to taking a trip. So when an athlete applies for our programs, we will go back and forth and give them a little questionnaire to get an idea of where the athlete feels they are at where they feel they have strengths, where they feel they have the most potential in their sport for development and improvement. And once we get that questionnaire done, then we set up a meeting. And in that meeting, we talk about their history. We talk about where they want to go. And we really start nailing down how they feel they can get there within their means, within the means of their time, within the means of their development and where they live and also within their financial means, which is something that we hold in high regard. One of the big things that's going on in developmental sport right now is the industrialization of athlete and player development. It is a massive marketplace place that's generating billions and billions of dollars a year, and you can get caught up in the maelstrom. I'll tell you comfortably that most athletes we start working with, not only do we cut back how much they're doing 
we save some of the athletes and their families thousands and thousands of dollars. And what do we get on the other side? Almost 100% of the time, we get fewer injuries. They're healthy and they're developing and they're performing. We get better performance with actually doing less. It's easy to overschedule. And again, that goes back to this peak by Friday attitude that we have in society today where we think more is better right now. And that is not the case. There's no question. It's with the greatest of intentions that athletes, coaches, and even parents are scheduling in all of these activities and all of this work and all this competition and training to create the best opportunity for their young up and coming or their existing high performance athlete. Unfortunately, there is a cost to pay. Again, it's that short sightedness that really gets people into trouble. You need to consider the long game. And I believe that's one of our strengths. When we take in an athlete, we start planning the trip. And the two things we really work to identify early on and as crystal clear as possible is where the trip is going to take us. What is the destination? And we identify that. And that is athlete driven. But most importantly, and even more importantly, is working to decipher and pinpoint where the athlete is at right now. That is a big job. And that's where most athletes fail when they come to see us. They have an idea where they want to go, where they want to end up. Some of them have it in their mind. They don't hesitate. Some of them are a little uh, vague with their future goals and objectives. We pinpoint and sharpen that right up. But almost every athlete that we take in fails in identifying where they're at right now with accuracy. So we start planning this trip with a clear idea of where they're at and where they need to go. And then we start plotting the course based on our foundations of development. And our foundations of development are grounded in the philosophy of creating coachable players, giving those technical, tactical skill coaches athletes who can actually get the job done or at least progress through their system of development. The player is at the top of our hierarchy and underneath that are all the areas of athlete development. Things like flexibility, cardiovascular performance, strength and conditioning, agility and movement, speed, power, even visual performance. And then another layer that really needs to be seriously considered are things like rest and recovery, nutrition and hydration, the brain game and the psychology of development. Then you have injury and rehab, which is a very, very important part of the world of sports, something that needs to be framed in the right way, which we take a lot of pride in doing. And then, of course, posture and setup. There are others, but those would be our foundations before we even consider sport performance or in-game performance. If these areas are lacking, we know the potential of the athlete is limited, whether it's short-term or long-term. This is the approach we take when an athlete comes to us. Now, from there, we have our top priorities for performance in sport. And if you listen to the show, you've heard these many, many times. I am going to go through them again here because I don't think we could talk about this enough because if these top priorities aren't addressed and taken care of, Nothing else really, really matters. You can't be your best at anything if these are not addressed accordingly. So in our programs, when we take on an athlete, a team or an organization, and after we do that original questionnaire, we understand where they want to go. But we all have a very clear idea of where they're at. And that's not a little thing. Trust me. We'll look at their injury history. We'll do a musculoskeletal screen. We'll do a concussion baseline. We'll also look at posture and range of motion assessment. We'll look at their movement skills. We'll also talk to their coaches. We'll talk to scouts. And depending on what level they're at, we'll talk to their current performance team or anyone who has worked with them within the last few years to get feedback on where they think they're at, how they think that athlete is developed and where they think they need to go. Whether they're right or wrong doesn't matter. We just want as much feedback from as many different angles as possible. That's a big job. Once we've accumulated all that, we start doing our physical assessments to find out where is the athlete at in terms of all those foundations of development. Is their flexibility okay? Do they have the cardiovascular base to withstand the training and recover properly? Do they have the proper strength base? Do they move well, speed, power, visual, all of these things that we need to address? 
we decide where we're going to start. But it all lies on our top priorities of performance, which are number one, rest, recovery, and sleep. Sleep is king. If our athletes are not sleeping well, we attack that with a vengeance. And luckily, we're hooked up with some of the best sleep people in the world. If you don't know about sleep, all you need to do is go back to our archives and search out our episodes on sleep and sleep performance with the top minds in the world. There is so much great information there. You can quickly become an expert in sleep and sleep science and how it impacts performance. Every program that we make revolves around rest and recovery. And we have the competitive schedule, which is an influence. We have the coach and the coach's attitude, which is an influence. We have the life of the athlete, which is also an influence. Do they have a job? Are they playing another sport? What's going on in their lives? Do they play a musical instrument? Are they in drama? Do they do art? What is consuming their time and where are they expending energy? Spending the time to find that balance is critically important. It ultimately tells us the amount of time available for recovery. The amount of time available for recovery drives not just the volume of the work, the frequency of the work, and the intensity of the work we do. The body can perform tremendous amounts of work. That's not the problem. The problem is, are we giving it enough time to recover before we work again? And that is one of the major problems in the sporting landscape today. It's not so much that we overwork. It's that we don't give our athletes and players enough time to recover. It might sound like the same thing, but it's not when you get into actual programming. When we program for an athlete, there are variables that we key in on. And those variables are the amount of time they spend competing and practicing, the frequency of the work, the intensity of the work, and then the volume of the overall work. On both the athlete side, the strength and conditioning, and the player side, the technical, tactical, and competitive schedule. And then on top of all that, we also consider movement efficiencies. Think of a runner, for example. We have runners that are so graceful and effortless, they look like works of art when they move. Then we have runners who are bouncing all over the place. They're pounding on the ground. You can see their joints getting flared up. They're not efficient movers, but they can still be incredibly successful. We just have to manage those athletes a little differently. So we can talk about that for virtually every athlete in every sport. Are they competent, efficient movers? Or do we need to manage them differently because of their movement patterns? And are those movement patterns correctable? Most times they are. So you have your volume of work, which includes your competitive schedule, your practice schedule, your training schedule, strength and conditioning, preparing for sport, and any other sport demands in an athlete's schedule. And then you have to factor in the intensity of the work you're doing. The higher the intensity, the more recovery time an athlete will need. Keep that in mind. And then you have to work in the overall frequency. How often is an athlete active? And ultimately, that gives you an idea of how much time they have to recover, which should drive how you prescribe the work that you're doing. And then before you're done, you have to look at the movement efficiencies of that particular athlete and whether they're exerting more effort than other athletes, whether they're creating more damage in their bodies, more fatigue in their bodies because they're not efficient movers. It doesn't mean they can't be successful. It just means they have to be managed a little bit differently, okay? So those are the four big areas that we sort of key in on as we start working with an athlete. And then we hammer out a calendar and a timetable for that athlete. And we don't like taking athletes for less than four weeks. We prefer three months or six months, even a year or two years, because then we know we can slowly steer that ship in the right direction and get them going where they need to go. So once we have our calendar done, we can then determine when we're going to train on the athlete side and when we're going to train on the player side. And we work very, very closely with the coaches to make sure everything is in balance. And this is very critical. And that's one of the driving forces behind my course, creating coachable players, because most coaches don't have the resources of a performance team. So they have to do it themselves. It is impossible for a coach to really do it well unless they understand it. The course outlines the science and the theory of long-term athlete development and how it can support 
player development and in-game performance on the sports side. It's a beautiful thing. Again, I'm very, very proud of that course. I think it can be a game changer and it's based on the discussion we're having today. Once we have that calendar in place, again, now we can start understanding the amount of sleep, the amount of rest and the amount of recovery the athlete has, and we can start programming in the work. But to support that work, our second top priority for performance is nutrition. And nutrition is key. We're not going to get deep into it. You can go back and listen to all the shows we've had on sport nutrition with some of the top minds in the world. Go back to last week with Dr. Andui Salen in our war on sugar. There's a whole lot more in that discussion than just sugar and how it influences uh, development and performance. There is a whole discussion on the biochemistry of performance in sport that's underlying that conversation. But that's truly what it's all about. When it comes to nutrition, it's not rocket science. We just need to be basic. And then you can start peppering in some of the hardcore science. The thing we need to understand is that human biochemistry operates in a certain way. We like to keep our athletes as consistent as possible. And that means eating often, eating well and eating often. And there are some powerful things you can do here. Like, for example, one of the lowest hanging fruits in the performance tree has to be hydration. It is very, very rare that we work with an athlete who's hydrated properly. Even when we're working with athletes who tend to be educated and, and better at it, they still have a hard time hydrating properly. Well, we know that that hydration piece is just such a simple way to maximize your day-to-day -day performance. It can also help you reduce the risk of injury. So one of the first things we do is we start mapping out food logs and eating plans for our athletes based on the schedules that they have. It really helps them organize their days and stay consistent. And if there's one word that is utterly important in all of our programming, it's this word called consistency. Consistency away from the game is gonna equal consistency inside of the game. And that starts with your sleep, rest and recovery and your nutrition and hydration. And there's a study I like to refer to here that really emphasizes the importance of these two things. It's a study from 2017 that was published in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science, looking at 340 elite high school competing athletes in a range of different sports. And the researchers were looking at, okay, why is it that some athletes perform better than others? But more importantly, why is it that some athletes seem to be more prone to injury than others when they exist in the exact same environment. So these are high school academy athletes from a, a range of different sports. And when they broke down all the variables, when they broke down their findings, here's what they found. The results, athletes who reached the recommended amount of sleep, i.e. more than eight hours per night on weekdays, reduced their likelihood of sustaining new injury by 61%. It's a big number. It might be a small sam sample size of 340 elite athletes, but I think it tells a very important tale. Sleep is important, not just for performance, not just for performance in sport and academics. It also has a massive, massive impact on our recovery and our risk of injury. So that was an interesting finding. Then the other major finding that they had, athletes who reached the recommended intake of fruits, vegetables, and fish reduced their likelihood of sustaining new injury by 64%. So sleep accounted for a 61% reduction in risk of injury and proper diet accounted for a 64% reduced risk of injury in this group. And I love that study because it reinforced what we'd been talking about for almost 15 years up to that point. We need to make sure these foundations are rock solid in our athletes before we even talk about sport performance, but we don't. How many of your athletes, or if you're an athlete listening, how good is your sleep? How good is your diet? This is what we start programming in. When we take in an athlete, these are the first things we start addressing before we even look at a weight room or look at movement training or even look at sports specific training. So priority number one, sleep, rest and recovery. It drives everything in every decision we make. We support that with nutrition and hydration. Again, the lowest hanging fruit, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. We know that sleep and nutrition are critical. And then we look at posture. Now listen, posture is like your setup. And here's a story for you. One of my roommates in high school was an assistant pro at the beautiful Banff Springs Golf Course. And you know, it's about an hour, hour and a bit drive from Calgary where I went to university. 
And once in a while, we got to go out and hit on the range. Or if there was an opening, he would get us in to do a round of golf at a very, very student rate, <laughs> which was great because we didn't have a lot of money in that days. But one day he called me up and said, hey, Jeff, um, there's an opening at two o'clock here where we have an opening in a foursome. Can you get out here? And I said, yes. And listen, I am not a big golfer. I enjoy the challenge of the sport. But even at that time, I'd only golfed a couple of times in my life. So hanging out with Bob was great because I got this exposure to the higher end of that sport and how challenging it really was. So I get out there and we're getting set for our two o'clock tee time. And it's with the head pro, Bob, who's the assistant pro, and one of the lead club golfers out there. So, you know, three of the best golfers in the area and then me. Well, what I didn't know that just after two o'clock, the reason we had to tee off at two is because there was a giant golf group coming up. It's like three buses of tourists coming up to start a little tournament at two o'clock. And so all these buses pull up as just as we're teeing up. So there's like 200 people standing around and we're on the first tee box. And boom, the head pro hits a ball, you know, 300 yards straight down. Bob hits one beautifully right down the middle, almost, you know, 300 yards. And then the 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 uh, golf member hits his ball beautifully, drives it right down the middle. And then I get up there, all right? And I'm pretty athletic, right? I'm playing all the sports and I'm in great shape. And I get up there and I swing my club and it's like, five feet off the ground, a nice little slice to the left, and it hits an elk about 75, maybe 80 yards out, right in the ass. Boom, thump. It hits the freaking elk and it drops straight down and you could hear it thud. The funny thing was, the elk didn't even lift his head. What happened was, after all those guys made their shots, everybody's clapping, the golf clap is going, everybody's, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I hit mine, people were rolling on the ground laughing. All I could do is hang my head. We're driving out. Well, the most embarrassing part is me trying to get my ball. It was like an inch away from the hoof of the elk who didn't even really care I was there, but I'm trying to reach out and tap my ball out and everybody, I could hear everybody still laughing uh, at the tee box. So a very humbling experience for me as an athlete. But here's something that happened that day that changed my entire approach to this very day when it comes to athlete development. Um, driving away from that shot, I was in the cart with Bob and I said, Bob, how is it possible, man? I could be so good at this many sports, but why am I so terrible at golf? It's just doesn't seem that hard. He goes, listen, man, you're done before you start. I said, what do you mean? He says, your setup is so wrong, man. You don't have a chance. I go, well, I still don't understand what you mean. He goes, look, he goes, where your hands are, the way you're positioning your hands in your stance is totally wrong. Where you're standing in relationship to the ball is totally wrong. Where your club is and your backspring, backswing is totally wrong. How you're standing and you're bending at the waist is totally wrong. He says, before you even start moving your club, you're done. And I'm going, huh? He goes, we'll work on your setup. So over the course of that summer, um, I went to the range with him a couple of times and we just worked on what that setup looks like. Then when I started working with athletes, it resonated with me. The posture, your balance, your symmetry, the alignment is your setup. And if that setup isn't right, you're done before you start. And that's why posture is one of our top priorities for sport performance. Now, let me ask you, go back into your athletic history. If you're coaching right now, think about how much time do you spend correcting and sustaining or maintaining post the posture of your athletes? Or if you're an athlete listening to the show, how much time do you spend addressing posture and range of motion around your joints for sport performance? If you're not, you are making a grave mistake. That's why it's our number three priority. Once the posture, symmetry, range of motion around the joints is established, then we address our fourth priority, which is movement. And here's what I ask each and every one of my athletes when I start getting into this phase of their training. The first question I ask is, where does movement happen? So I'm posing that question to you as a listener. Pause the show. Pause it here if you need to think about it. But where does movement happen? What do you think? We get so many different answers from athletes. It's all over the map. And there's not a wrong answer. Actually, they're quite well thought out answers but very few athletes really understand the concept of movement and how it happens. Now, yes, you can wiggle your fingers, that's movement. You can blink your eyes while your eyelids are moving. You can turn your head, that's movement. But when we're talking about movement here, 
We're talking about movement with purpose, movement to kick a ball, movement to throw a ball, movement to hit a ball, movement to move your center of mass from point A to point B. When we're talking about movement and training movement in sport, that's what we're talking about. Yes, there is no question we train segmental movement in sport. We go through running school. We go through hip mobility. We go through ankle and knee positioning. We go through arm slots, arm mobility, scapular stabilization. We go through core and even thoracic positioning for performance. That's all movement training for sure. But when you're performing in sport, when you're trying to execute a skill, where does movement happen? When you try to um, um, dribble a ball around a, an opponent on the basketball court, or when you go to make that shot or that pass, when you go to hit that ball, throw that ball, catch that ball, when you go to kick that ball in soccer or football, when you run to intercept a pass, how do you create that movement? Where does movement happen? Well, the thing we focus on for our athletes is the movement and interaction with the ground, interacting with the ground. This is a game changer for virtually every single athlete we've ever worked with. Even seasoned veterans, 10-year veterans of professional sport who have never done this before. And they can be some of the best athletes out there. But when we teach them this, it takes their game to new levels. Now, when we get young athletes, which is what I love, we get athletes 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age moving properly. Listen, it changes the trajectory of their sport performance forever forever because now they're building on something that's meaningful building on something that's solid that's why we call it one of our foundations so we have our first top priority rest recovery and sleep it drives all of our programming then we have number two nutrition and hydration it is a close number two but make no mistake it is number two and then we have posture our setup posture and range of motion and then we teach movement and that's the hierarchy. But there's a fifth one that we've added. And if you listen to the show, you know what it is. Over the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of research into something we call the crush brain game. You can go back and listen to the entire series on the brain game. It is fascinating. And I do go back. I have gone back and listened to every one of those shows twice, some of them three times because they're just so informative. And I've always picked up something new every time I listen to one of those experts who we're still in touch with. It will reignite some of those conversations for sure. But the brain game is this massive thing. And it's more than just sports psychology or the mental game. Visualization. Those are just small, small pieces of this incredibly important part of human performance, especially when it comes to sport. Now, there are so many variables here. This gets very individual. And the brain game isn't number five on our list. On our list, the first four, that's a hierarchy. We start with sleep, rest, and recovery. Our second move is nutrition and hydration. Our third move is posture, range, of motion. Our fourth move is teaching movement. Those are the order that we address those ones. But the brain game is something special, okay? Because if an athlete is experiencing anxiety or they're dealing with stress or they have a performance gap in their mental approach, that needs to be addressed first because nothing else matters if that's off base, right? So we do this very cool screening for our athletes on the mental side, and it gives not just our athletes an idea of how they're thinking and where they're at. It gives us a really clear picture of what we might be able to do on that side of performance to help them achieve. It's a fascinating area for me. And again, if you've listened to the show, you know that I believe the brain game holds the greatest potential for pushing human performance forward because we now have technology that allows us to not only map the brain, we can monitor brain activity in real time. We can train the brain in real time like we've never, ever been able to before. And it's a game changer when it's used in proper context at the right times. Just such fun stuff. Or if an athlete is experiencing stress or anxiety to the effect that it's impacting their performance or even more importantly, their sleep. Well, then we know that part of the brain game has to become our number one top priority because it affects everything else down the line. And I believe this is where we're really missing the boat in sport performance. We are so focused on the skill, technical, tactical development. We're missing the whole preparation side of sport. 
And while we're seeing some incredible things going on at the highest levels of sport, the Shohei Otanis, the Connor McDavid's, the Lionel Messi's of the world, right? The Serena Williams. We've got incredible things going on at the highest levels of sport. I don't think we're even close to experiencing overall top performance in sport. We're not even close to hitting the pinnacle of high performance sport because at the developmental levels where we can change the trajectory of an athlete's future, where we can raise that ceiling of potential way down the road, we are missing the boat by competing way too much and injuring our players. All you have to do is look at the data. It's all out there. Now, we are seeing some good trends, and that's encouraging, but I can't wait for the industry to change. I can't wait for the landscape to change. So when athletes come to us, we take control, and we do it right, and that's what I would wish for you. If you're a parent, if you're a coach, if you're an athlete, map out and understand your journey, and then Establish your calendar based on the priorities, the top priorities for performance in sports, sleep, rest, recovery, nutrition, hydration, posture, range of motion, movement, and the brain game. From there, you can attack sport performance. But we're missing these very important steps in the sporting landscape today at virtually every single level. Boy, oh boy, what an opportunity for an athlete, for a team, or an organization. Do we know how good you can actually become? No, we don't. But can we find out? Yes, by going through the process, which just isn't that hard when you create coachable players and when you think like an athlete. I'm Jeff Kershell. The Crush Performance Podcast is recorded right here in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media. To get the Crush archives and to subscribe to the show, go to jeffkershell.com and check out our new course, Creating Coachable Players, Key Strategies for Player Performance and Injury Prevention in the Game of Baseball. We had a ton of fun putting that course together, so let me know what you think. Every sport is coming soon and also our Parenting the Athlete course. All of the courses are based on your questions and they're designed to help you think like an athlete and create coachable players. So much fun. That's it for this week, everybody. We'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.